Ready? Born ready. Welcome back. It's another episode of your favorite political podcast, Where the Party At? I'm your host, Salva Long. I know you missed us last week. I was having, living the good life on the, on mountain, on mountain time in Montana. I got to uh, channel my inner Republican. No, I'm just kidding. But I did do clay shooting, which was really fun. <laughs> I, um... Road horses. I was actually there for work, and I legitimately did a lot of work. But it was really cool to uh, be outside and kind of, you know, embrace the the Western vibe, so to speak. Wear a cowboy hat a lot of days, you know, cowboy boots. I had to explore the other side, other than the city life, you know what I mean? But anyway, back to the show. We are back. And as always, there's so much to talk about. We are again starting with something that, you know, is becoming uh, a regular recurring uh, topic for us on the show. And that is the anti-public safety training center campaign going on in the city of Atlanta. The signature campaign is officially underway. Interestingly enough, Councilmember Liliana Bakhtiari was the second person to sign the petition. If you remember from the pod previously, she was one of the council members who voted against funding the training center. Um, they are at or have just succeeded about 10,000 signatures so far, which is a very big deal. Um, and they basically need to do about 10,000 signatures a week to meet their goal and everyone's you know waiting and wondering to see what's going to happen um my guess is that you know there's if i'm the city and i'm putting on my political hat there's probably a campaign effort to encourage people to not sign the petition um and i would guess that there's also going to be an effort to invalidate uh, as many signatures as possible um, and to even find another way, maybe find some kind of loophole to make sure that it's not on the ballot. Uh, so we'll see what ends up happening with, with that. Um, in the same vein, something interesting that raised some eyebrows is that the district attorney in DeKalb County, Sherry Boston, announced that her office is no longer part of any cases related to the training center. And so those are primarily, I'm talking about those domestic terrorism charges that about 42 people uh, who were arrested were charged with domestic terrorism. And instead, it means that the Attorney General, Chris Carr, who is a Republican, the state Attorney General, is going to be presiding over the cases. And so the DeKalb DA's office will no longer be involved. And this has been one of the, really one of the challenges with the entire opposition is what are Democrats doing and 
are Democrats okay with people being charged with domestic terrorism? Like that. So we'll see uh, what ends up happening with these cases. I don't know what the timeline is, but if you think about we're in the month of July now, and the primaries will be the presidential primaries in March of next year, um, you know, this could end up being something that is part of national fodder uh, in the Republican um elections so we'll see what ends up happening uh, but that was certainly a big moment in the entire public safety training center um you know movement uh there was also by the way keith i don't know if you heard about this but there was some like not a riot but there was something that happened over the past few days this is while i was out of town so i didn't get to pay as much attention but there was some issue that happened with the training center and people being arrested you talking about the uh when they set the motorcycles on fire? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah I, I, that's what it was, was motorcycles. And then I saw something that the mayor was at a firehouse, like, announcing investment in the fire station or the fire foundation. And a couple of the pastors, two black people who spoke at the um, city council meeting, they were there and they... Uh, you know, basically confronted him as he was speaking at the fire station and were saying, like, you know, why are you still for this? And there were council members there and it got loud, I'll say. Um, and they cut, I guess they cut the the program short and went inside the fire station. It's getting serious. Like, this is a serious. I, yeah, I think it's going to be the people a somewhere. I think. I think all summer long we're going to see some versions of this and, you know, who knows what's going to end up happening over time, but it's smart. So if you were in opposition to the training center, it's smart to keep the issue in front of folks' minds if you're trying to get people to sign up, right, and say, yes, I'm, I want a referendum on the ballot. So my guess is that they're going to be doing actions for the entire summer yeah. as they try to get people to sign up. So the, all the signatures, yeah, they're going to remind you like every, every time he steps out, he's going to look at, look uh, over the shoulder. Yeah. And then I believe because it's such a controversial thing, there's moles in the camp. So I don't even think he can go anywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Like somebody's on tell. So yeah, he, just do the right thing. Listen to the people. I just don't. Understand. Well, I think, their take is they are listening to people and people, there are some people who do want a training center. They're just not vocal about it. And the opposition is vocal. Tell them, uh, come on out when you see who, who's for it. Yeah. I, I imagine that's part of, you know, that effort too. I mean, he did an event with, this was before the council vote, but it was a number, I don't know if it was a hundred black men, but it was a number of black men. And he did a um, a press conference in front of City Hall, and Ambassador Andrew Young was there, and a few other notable black men. And they were all, you know, kind of in solidarity. But I don't think that I don't think that necessarily moves the needle. Yeah, no, those 
it's the same black man for all the same uh, photo ops. So, yeah, and that's I think that's part of the the question is like this is this the establishment versus you know this kind of new younger class. We'll we'll see. I I don't think it's uh it's certainly not going anywhere, and we'll probably be talking about it, like I said, all summer. Um, but I it's going to be incredibly hard for them to get seventy thousand plus signatures. That is not easy, and I don't know to what extent. You know, there's some question about where's the Democratic Party of Georgia? Like, are they? I mean, they're obviously. I I certainly don't think they would ever help the. The campaign to get people uh, to put signatures on the ballot, but I don't. Gosh, I don't. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I think it'll just, you know be quiet. Yeah, Let yeah, it. they're probably just going to stay out of it, or or quietly help the mayor is what my guess would be. They either stay out of it or quietly help the mayor. That is. Um. On to a Georgia topic, uh, the lieutenant governor, who we've talked about a couple of times on the pod now, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, a few months ago, maybe it was, he wrote the um, chancellor, the university chancellor, Sonny Perdue, former governor, big Republican, and he asked that the universities in the in the Georgia university system account for their DEI spending, so how they were spending money on any diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And so the chancellor finally responded and wrote back to Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. This was reported in the AJC. And he wrote him, I think they said it was like a, it was a multi, multi-page letter, like more than 20. It, it was a, lo- a long letter. And one of the things the chancellor said, and I'm going to quote this, because this sounds like something that you would not expect to hear from a Republican. And I quote, higher education is a place where people, young people particularly, come to realize that not everybody brings their same life perspective. We cannot learn from one another if we don't listen to one another. Again, this is Sonny Perdue, He's a huge Republican in Georgia, writing to the Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones about DEI in the university system. And so that just made me think about, like, what would this, you know, there's a lot of parallels and conversations going on about Georgia versus Florida as Ron DeSantis runs for governor. And the way we do politics in Georgia is a little different from Florida, even though some of the same bills or types of bills are passed, right? And somehow Republican politics in Georgia, I think, feels a little bit more genteel or the approach does not, the rhetoric is doesn't feel the same as it does in a place like Georgia. But this this was just a fascinating response, I thought. I think it has something to do with uh, black Republicans in Georgia because we have a lot of purple, mm. purple black people, if you would mm-hmm. be like a lot of, uh, 
they could lean Democratic on some things, but they can work with the Republican governor. Mm-hmm. I think of like a killer Mike, you know, people like that. And then a lot of business people right, like that too. So like, yeah, they might could vote Democrat, but this Republican office is doing everything that they need. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we still have a, uh, we still have like that kind of traditional Republican party here where like you can see yourself being a part of it versus down in Florida. They have that tinge of MAGA. And we, right. I don't think we have a MAGA element in Georgia. Well, we have a MAGA element like with the, in with the politics. Yeah, we have a MAGA element within the Republican Party in Georgia, but not to the same extent in the Republican elected leadership yeah, in Georgia. Yeah. That's what I mean, too. Yeah. And even with the people, too, because I feel like we have more, we have a lot more unspoken Black Republicans in Georgia than right. are accounted for. I think that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get that anywhere else. It's one day they'll probably come out the woodworks. Like if they have a strong, you know, Republican candidate for president. It's right. A lot of bros with these red hats on. Yeah. Well, you know, I there are now three, we talked about this in the pot, there are three black men running for president on the Republican ticket. Yeah. And I really want to figure out a way to do like a real thoughtful conversation about that. This is massive. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to do it. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, in the Republican MAGA frame, <laughs> something interesting happened a couple of weeks ago between Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. So they are both part of the Freedom Caucus, uh, which is a very conservative uh, caucus within the Republican Party. Marjorie Taylor Greene, as we talked about in the pod, is a big reason why the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, uh, was able to win his speakership. And she has a pretty good relationship with Kevin McCarthy. So something happened on the House floor a couple of weeks ago. And the lip readers were able to figure out what Marjorie Taylor Greene said to Lauren Robert, who is one of her, who was one of her, like, you know, friends and besties and Congress. And Marjorie called her the B word. I can't even say it because this pod is like a PG pod. So we can't even say what it was. And why Marjorie Taylor Greene was so mad is because she has drafted articles of impeachment against Joe Biden, against President Biden. And Lauren Boke Barrett also drafted articles of impeachment. And Marjorie basically says to Lauren, you are doing this just to raise money for your congressional campaign. And so the whole thing was fascinating because my understanding is Marjorie Taylor Greene had some kind of like agreement with the Speaker of the House on when she was going to push this legislation forward. And basically, she felt like Lauren Robert was trying to steal her thunder and copy her. But the fact of the matter is, it was a bit of pot versus kettle, because they're both doing it to raise money. And Marjorie kind of admits out loud, like, yes, I'm doing this to raise money. And Lauren is doing it to raise money as well. And so it's just one of those things where, you know, the the extreme politics 
you're reminded of like why it's happening. And it's not necessarily happening because people fundamentally believe a certain way, but it's happening because they enjoy the celebrity of being extreme and they enjoy the financial benefits of being extreme. So crazy. And, and there's a chance that Marjorie Taylor Greene will actually get kicked out of the Freedom Caucus, which is just remarkable uh, to, to think about. Who knows what's going to happen with her politically, but, I mean, she has clearly shown that she can navigate politics in a way that is, uh, shall we say, unique. I need to send you this podcast I just heard that, like, traced... Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene in the Freedom Caucus and all of this, mm -hmm. uh, all the way back to like Sarah Palin. Yes, accurate. I haven't heard it, but yes, Sarah Palin was the very beginning of this, and it's why people were so freaked out when she was named uh, McCain's running mate because McCain gave this presence of honor and integrity and respect, and Sarah Palin was, you know, virtually the opposite of that. And she was this. I mean, you would take Sarah Palin now over to TG. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, that's a hard. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is smarter than Sarah Palin. Okay. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene sees the upside of her behavior and so she leans into it right i can be in the paper every day i can go on the national speaking circuit i can i can be the lever between kevin mccarthy being elected speaker or not like there's no disincentive to not be that person and then you get that uh elusive book deal and then you get to sit back and eat yeah yeah you know, or sell something and people are going to buy it just because of who you are. Yeah. I think she sees the financial benefit for sure. And the last aside is I have heard repeatedly that who she is publicly is not who she is privately. Who she is privately is, you know, much more chill. Yeah, I think all that is about to go out the window too. Like people not being able to you can't play both sides of the fence. Oh, a lot of them do, though. I mean, this is what's what's I think is so broken about Congress. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is, you know, it's so funny. Like, you think about the reaction to, um, was it Parkland when when Alex Jones called ever called them crisis actors? Mm -hmm. Like, that's essentially half of Congress. Yeah, they're they're crisis actors. It's like, oh, I'm do I'm doing this because it benefits me to behave this way. Sort of, yeah. I think things on a, like you said, that's the problem with politics. Right. So, yeah. Not too much malaria on that. Yeah. Um, which leads us to a great conversation about Ron DeSantis <laughs> and something he did that I, I could not, I mean, I had heard about this. I think, Keith, you had actually maybe mentioned this to me. I don't know, but about what's happening around undocumented immigrants in Florida. So basically what Ron DeSantis and 
the Florida General Assembly is trying to do is make Florida like the absolute last place an undocumented immigrant would want to be. So this data is according to the Florida Policy Institute, which I think is considered maybe center left. So not super, not liberal, but not conservative. So they assess the legislation and any employer, here's the gist, any employer who knowingly hires an undocumented worker is penalized. So if you don't use E-Verify, which is already required, if I'm not mistaken, federally, but I don't know to what extent is it really cracked down upon. Florida will now fine the employer $1,000 a day and suspend their business license until they essentially rectify the situation. If you're the worker, you get a fine of up to $5,000 or five years in prison. Okay. Which I don't know what the cost of five years in prison is on the Florida taxpayer, but it's a heck of a lot more than $5,000. They expect this to cost Florida $12.6 billion in the first year. And the industries that are going to be most impacted are agriculture, forestry, fishing, and hunting. And it's estimated that 47% of the workforce in those industries is made up of undocumented workers. Is construction under there? Because, like, I know the construction workforce. Yeah. I don't. That's right. Everywhere. Well, yeah, I mean, so one of, there was an article, I can't remember which outlet, maybe it was Washington Post or some national outlet, and they were, they interviewed a construction worker who basically said, like, I packed up, I packed a bag and left the state, and I gave whatever I, I didn't keep, I gave it to other undocumented families, and he got the hell out, basically is what the, he said. Um, so I'm curious to, to see how businesses respond to this. You know, maybe they're not feeling it in the immediate, but what happens six, eight months from now? And, and it might be something deeper. Uh, I need to do some research because I also know, you know, there's a big, um, uh, like Cuban mm-hmm. uh, presence there too. There is. I know how they feel about illegal immigrants. Right. Like, you know, they, they don't like it either. Right. So, you know. Maybe the work with the workforce might not go away. Maybe. So then who, so if undocumented immigrants no longer take those jobs, right? They no longer fill those those jobs. Who comes in and fills them? Is it people who were already in Florida who were unemployed? I I don't know what happens there. Either that or like the, the, I don't know what the construction companies are going to do because there's plenty of, workers like for all of these jobs the issue with the undocumented workers and uh legal workers is the pay you know if you hire me you know and i've been certified to do construction in america like the baseline is 18 dollars you're giving that undocumented person 10 dollars you know so right well the construction companies want to pay out that's well they're not going to have a choice then i then I, i don't think it'll be as bad might be the question is just, will they find enough workers to mm-hmm. build a gap? But it's definitely going to cost them more. And, you know, unfortunately, if they don't, they uh, might make the prisoners do it. 
it could get deeper. I was saying it could be a deeper, you know, you do some research, it could get deeper. Yeah, we'll see. So this just went into effect, if I'm not mistaken, July 1. So we'll see what what ends up happening. But it'll be interesting from a timing standpoint, because I would imagine this will really start to, you'll really start to see it three to six months from now. And the first um, presidential debate is in August of this year. So we'll see over time how this impacts DeSantis. Uh, speaking of presidents, everyone's favorite president, Donald Trump, um, he is obviously is like facing so many different legal issues. So as a result of this, he is diverting 10% of all donations on his fundraising platform to his PAC. It was previously 1%, but because of all these legal fees that he needs to pay, he's now diverting 10%. And I'm like, man, his donors are just paying for his legal defense funds. Trump is the best in history. <laughs> he's had the people <laughs> paying. He's he's Where next he's level. Defense. Next level. The art of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was reading something about uh, briefly about um, the first, you know, the first couple states, right, in the Republican primary. And I, I want to say it's Ohio is one of the first states. And they basically said, or Iowa, I believe, not Ohio. But they said that because the indictments, like Trump is doing really well in the state, and it's because of the indictments. And so there is a path where if he wins the right states in the right sequence, that he could indeed win the nomination. And it's because people are incensed at these indictments. Okay. Oh, I can't wait for the first debate. It's, it's going to be it's going to be a mess, but it's going to be interesting. I think Chris Christie's just going to attack him left and right. And we'll see what ends up happening as a result of that. On, I don't know if I should make this a party pooper or just briefly mention it and say we need to do a separate podcast episode about this. Everyone has heard about it by now, for sure. For sure, the Supreme Court uh, ruled on three cases that are going to be a key part, I think, of the presidential um, election. Um, affirmative action, student loan debt, and LGBT rights. If I'm Biden and there's apathy amongst Democrats to come to the polls and vote, I am using these cases as a litmus test for Democrats because only the president appoints the Supreme Court justice. And in four years, who knows what could end up happening with the Supreme Court. You've got um, a number of justices who are older. The justices that Trump appointed are younger. And so we'll see, you know, what ends up happening. Um, but and then we'll see if Democrats want to try to change the lay of the land as it relates to the Supreme Court. Does it make sense for 
justices to be appointed to a lifetime appointment. I think that could be up for debate. I mean, imagine a politician. I, I can't imagine a single, there's not one single politician where I would want to have a lifetime appointment. Not one. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of conversation about this over the next year. Uh, but these are three three big cases that uh, have folks up in arms. At least on student loan debt, there's some still some levers that the president could pull. I think there's a question about what he's going to be willing to do. Um, on affirmative action, I think to some extent, you know, Charles Barkley graduated from Auburn, I want to say, was the university. And he has a $15 million donation uh, that, I, I don't know if it's like a a scholarship. I want to say it's a scholarship that he has for Auburn students. And he just changed it in light of the affirmative action ruling um, that it's only for... I think black students uh, from low-income households or something like that. Um, and he said he did that because he wants to make sure that black students can get into can get into Auburn. Um, so the I you know I'm curious to see what ends up happening on the affirmative action front. And then obviously in reaction to it, folks have talked about how legacy admissions is really uh, much more egregious, you know, than people realize. So we'll see. And then on the LGBT stuff, I mean, it kind of reminded me, I haven't read up on any of these in depth just because I've been out of pocket with work, but it reminded me of the, remember the cake lady? It was like the woman who didn't want to make the cake for the gay couple. This seemed like another version of it, but it was a website for, I think, a gay wedding. So I don't know what's going to end up happening. Um, but these are all, like I said, these are three cases that we'll be paying a lot of attention to. And there'll be a lot more conversation about um, in the coming weeks and months. And we'll find a good legal scholar. Maybe we'll have Professor City all back or, or someone else to break down what this means. Um, and it'd be good to hear a Republican perspective, too, on these cases. Now, I'd be curious to know where, you know, some Black Republicans are on something like affirmative action, for example. Um, <laughs> I know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> know. But you're probably, you're probably right. <laughs> Whatever you were thinking, you're probably right. Um, so should we do a party pooper or party starter? Uh, you know, maybe the party pooper and starter can be one and the same. It could be the 4th of July and the celebration. Go America. Yeah, you know, go America. <laughs> but then we're striking down affirmative action and all types of rights, you know, but then... This is one of the only places in the world where you can come and, I guess, be free. You know, it's, it's a party. Yeah, party. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're one of the only countries in the world where we willed into being 
right? The United States of America. Yeah. Um, when I was in Montana, we were it was we were having a lot of conversation conversation about the state of American democracy and what does what is like what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a good citizen? And I think we're having a real struggle with that as a country. Um, you know, it's, it's just so fascinating. I remember when Michelle Obama said, uh, and it caused so much controversy where she was something, she said something to the effect of, you know, this is the first time I've been really proud to be an American when, uh, af after her husband, Barack Obama was elected and there's a lot of uproar about it. Um, but I think, I think there was something lost in what she said that folks didn't fully understand. Right. And so it was the first time that she saw America act in a way that was maybe counter to the history of the country. Um, so, you know, it's fascinating. I, I think there's going to be a lot of conversation in the coming months about what does the future of America look like? Certainly in the middle of um, the election season, and, you know, just all of that. I'm reading a book right now called The The Age of Acrimony, and it's about this family um, who were pro, they were like a pro-Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln family, and they did a lot of work around suffrage and rights for African-Americans and rights for women. And it, the gist of the book, I'm still in the early part of it, but the gist of the book is about how we feel like today things are so contentious in America. But if you, but that's only because we're like thinking through a short time frame, right? If you remember about, remember what happened during Lincoln's time or even the 50s and 60s. But <laughs> we're getting a little deep because basically what you're going through though is the issue with America. They keep trying to erase this and make it seem as if it's the first time, right? So, like, if more was known about those stuff, like the book that you're reading, mm -hmm. if that's the type of book that was taught during school, right? you're kind of already skipping 60 years of, like, the BS because you're like, well, oh, well, that's how they tried to fix it then, and they got to this point. I remember first reading about uh, Reconstruction Period. And all these black Republicans. Right. And just how black people during that one little period before it got shut back down after Abraham Lincoln died, it seemed like America was going to live up to the document. Yeah. And the process. And like, you know, then you fast forward to now. And uh, I can't remember who put it out. Was it Goldman Sachs? Somebody put up that report that said how much money America lost in just being racist. Yeah. Even the National Museum, uh, the National African American Museum in D.C., like they have the costs of slavery. Like here's how much it cost America to allow slavery to exist. Exactly. So then it's like, you know, what does a person, if America was a person, right? Right. And you're the type of person that know that you did heinous crimes and heinous stuff and you haven't dealt with it as a person. Yeah. It's going to eat you up every day and eventually you're yeah. going to you know, die from the stress and anxiety or right. you can look yourself in the mirror, you know, right your wrongs and then have a clearer conscience. Right. And we, we're just not righting the wrongs.
So I want to say, yeah, there was a, gosh, where was it? This was like Finland or Sweden or some European country in the past day or two, like some nobility there apologized for slavery. And I was like, I'm trying to imagine a United States president apologizing for slavery. No, they did. Who apologized for slavery? I think I think it was um, either Clinton or Obama. Somebody apologized. And Obama, the Obama can't does not count. I, I got to look it up because somebody they apologized, but they specifically said that this wasn't like an admission, though. Like you couldn't use it because you know if you apologize, oh, well, then that's not an apology. So then, what you're talking about is reparations because you know if you apologize for slavery. Right, then you were rectifying, yes. Okay, my car has been stolen. You apologize for stealing my car. Okay, so you stole it, so then how do I get the car back? Right. You apologize, you admitted it, so then how do I get it back? Right. There's a monetary value to that, or there's, you know, there's ways to get There's some deed done to rectify the situation. Exactly. Not just a word. Can't be just a word. So until we get to, if we're not going to deal with that, then we're not going to get there. But, you know, we'll probably talk about when we get to other people looking for affirmative action. I think this ruling is going to help lead to that. Yeah, it might. In a, in a positive way. Yeah, it might. I want to read just a snippet from this book, just kind of in this vein, um, because it relates to what's happening right now. And I quote, Many came to believe that a cabal of Southern aristocrats called the slave power, was strangling democracy for free white men as well as the enslaved. They pointed to the unhealthy status of politics in the Deep South, where some states still denied voting rights to men without property, where voter turnout was often abysmally low, where public dissent was squashed, where the Democrats often ran uncontested, and where Confederates were willing to leave the Union because they lost an election. That and I was like, wow, this feels yeah. sounds like that. quite relevant, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Yes. And then this last bit, um, and this was a quote from someone they didn't attribute to it. They didn't attribute it to a particular person, but it kind of talks about this whole thing here. Never allow yourself to lose sight of the fact that politics and not poker is our great American game, and nobody ever dreams of organizing a reform movement in poker. And so it just kind of gets to the point that a reform movement, which is really what is brewing to some extent, right, of like what what does it mean to be the United States of America from a political standpoint is what we are trying to, we're, we're wrestling with. Um, so, yes, I'm glad. I'm I'm, I don't know why I didn't think about the 4th of July, because, but um, yes, I think that is the perfect party pooper slash party starter is just kind of where we are as a country, what we want the country to look like, and what is our individual and collective role in addressing it. Okay, I think that is the show. And I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. 
Hey man, this is like one of my favorite national anthems. Yeah. This part right here. Cause there ain't no 